I want to begin by asking this question, what is faith? Dave has been teaching us about faith for the last few weeks, and and that's kind of the the theme or the question of what we're going to continue looking at. And oftentimes, we'll think of faith as it's it's a way that we refer to a religion, you know, what is your faith? I can see that your faith is important to you. We'll hear people say, or we've said it ourselves. So it's kind of a general description of, of our religious preference or the way we see the world. Uh, and it's also a way that we can describe our personal preferences, even if it doesn't fit in the category of normal religious faith. We kind of pick and choose maybe what we would like, whatever's true for you, whatever works for you, that's fine. And it doesn't, we don't really expect people who say that kind of thing to give any real reason or basis for, for what they would call their faith. It's, it's just kind of a subjective thing. So as long as you really sincerely believe it with enough conviction, then, then we would say, well, that's your faith. That's what you've that's what you're going for. But the, what we always need to remember is as the people of Jesus, we need to go to the scriptures and what does the Bible teach us about faith? And strangely enough, the Bible doesn't really talk about faith in either one of those ways uh, as a description of, of a whole group of, of religious people or of a, a personal preference of belief. Whenever the Bible talks about faith, when it's Jesus talking about faith or when it's one of the other biblical authors like Paul or Peter or someone like that, when faith is talked about, it is assumed, so it's not always said explicitly, but it's assumed that faith has something underneath of it, that it has a, it is a basis, that there's, it's not just some internal subjective preference or feeling, but it's based on something external, something real, something objective. So one example, and we'll see this later in 1 Corinthians, when, when the Apostle Paul, he's talking to the Corinthian church about the resurrection of Jesus, and he doesn't, he doesn't coddle people, he doesn't try to make them feel well. You know, even if the resurrection didn't really happen, it's okay as long as you believe that it happened or you believe something like it or it symbolizes something else. No, he says, if the resurrection isn't something that actually, physically, historically, objectively happened, then following Jesus is pointless. It's completely vain. It's, it's worthless. It's even foolish, he says in verse 14. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, objectively, not symbolically, if he, if he didn't actually come back to life, then what I'm doing, what I'm preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He says in verse 17, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, objectively, actually raised from the dead, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So, so the songs that we just sang, those would have no basis for them, because if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, how can he hold us fast? Uh, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't really happen, then we People who follow Jesus more than anyone else are, should be pitied above, above all people. We shouldn't be admired because we have such a strong faith. Uh, we should be pitied because if it's not based in something objectively true, then what we do as Christians is 
is sad. And it's, it's really sad. So, so if we're looking at the scriptures for what, what faith is, it's not a personal preference. No matter how sincere our belief or our desire might be, it's a belief in someone. And that someone is Jesus. D.A. Carson, when he describes faith or when he defines it, he says that it's a God-given ability. So it's a grace that God gives us to perceive or to see certain things that are true and to build your whole life around them, right? That is, that is the Christian faith, to see, for God to show us things that are objectively true and then to build our whole lives around them. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So, so I've been reading through the Gospels recently, and, and I just keep seeing this again and again, that the writers of the Gospels are pointing us again and again to Jesus with the intention of us seeing him like this, that, that this is who Jesus is. Look at him, hear what he says, look at what he does, and to see, to really see who he is. And then based on these things, these objectively true things, believe in him. Put your faith in him. Build your whole life around him. You know, sometimes we, we think as Christians, people will, will be like, are you one of those proselytizing Christians? Like, do you try to get people to believe the things that you believe? And, and I just noticed in reading them again that the Gospels are unapologetically proselytizing, right? The whole point of them is to help us believe in Jesus. And it's okay for people like us who believe in Jesus to want and to testify to who Jesus is and what he's done so that other people will believe in him. It's okay for you to do that, uh, just in case you needed a sense of permission. So today we're going to look at two very different people who had faith in Jesus, and both of them want something from Jesus, and he gives it to them, but they're, they're really transformed in the way they think about themselves and the way that they think about Jesus along the way. And, and our story is really the same, that when we make Jesus the object or the basis of our faith, the, the starting point, then our whole life is going to be transformed in ways that we did not expect or were anticipating. So we're going to read this passage from Mark chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 21 and go through verse 34. So Mark chapter uh, 5, beginning of verse 21, it's on page 840 if you're using one of the Bibles from the table in the back. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself 
that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask now for the gift of faith uh, to, to believe in Jesus and, and who he is and what he has done for us and that you would give us the faith to trust you with our whole lives, to build our whole lives around you, that our identity would be built on you, Jesus, what you have done for us, that, that the way we perceive ourselves would be, would be about what you have done for us and not through what we have done for you, uh, that, that the way we relate to you would be rooted, Jesus, in who you are and what you've done. And would you show us yourself today that we might have faith to, to really live with you, to abide in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first we're going to look at these two people, this man and this woman, and contrast them a little bit, and, and we'll see the differences in their lives and the way that Jesus interacts with each of them. So, so we've already looked at the question, what is faith, the nature of faith, it's what we put our hopes in, the beliefs that we build our life around, and as we walk through this passage, we will see the origin of faith, the object of faith the cost of faith, and the result of faith. So first, let's look at this man, Jairus, who comes to Jesus. So what are some things that we see about him? We, we know that he's named, right? He's given, we know who he is. We know what he does. He's a religious leader in the synagogue. We know that he's wealthy uh, because of his position. He's respected. He is admired and looked up to in the community. We know he has a family, at least one child. We know he has a household that have servants, so he's, he's a person of means, uh, and he's asking Jesus for something on behalf of someone else, right? He's asking for his daughter. I mean, he's, of course, he desires Jesus to heal his daughter, but he's really coming on behalf of his daughter, and his need is immediate and urgent, that it has to be done right away. And we get this clear picture from from this, just these couple of verses that that we could say Jairus's identity is seen primarily through his position, right? He is a leader, he is a person of means, someone who's looked up to and respected, and so the way he looks at himself and the way that other people look at him is primarily as this person of position. And you can see even in his approach to Jesus that that's how he thinks about himself. He comes to Jesus, he initiates the conversation. He initiates. He's humble. He, he falls on the ground. There's a humility there, but he is still bold. So he's a person who's used to initiating and, and coming to people uh, and starting the conversation. He speaks first, and he asks for something. He's bold. He's direct in his request, and then he is the one who leads Jesus, right? Come this way. Follow me. 
Okay, so this is Jairus. That's a, a picture of him. Now I want to move on to the next person that we meet in this passage, this woman. And she is not given a name, right? We, we don't know what her name is. But what we know about her is that she has been sick. She has a chronic condition, 12 years of hemorrhaging. Uh, and her sickness has made her unclean. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, what that means. But, but basically, for her to be unclean means that she is an untouchable person, uh, that she is an outcast, that she is an outsider, that she's not someone who's welcomed in the community, but someone who has to stay on the margins, outside, away from everyone else, because she is unclean. So I want to give you uh, a picture of what this means for her from a cultural standpoint. So James Edwards is a New Testament theologian, and so this is a little bit long. It's going to be up on the screen so you can follow along, but this is talking about this woman, why she is an outcast. According to the Torah, the Jewish law, a woman was unclean for seven days after her monthly period. But if she had a protracted gynecological problem, as does this woman, she remained unclean throughout its duration. So anyone who came into contact with her during menstruation would be banished until evening. Josephus's testimony that the temple was closed to women during their menstruation indicates that this particular Torah ruling was carefully observed in Jesus' Jesus's day. Accordingly, a menstruating woman and whoever touched her was banished from the community until purification. Now, that, that seems like uh, a, a kind of a technical definition, but we need to think through the practical realities of what this meant for this woman. Uh, because of her illness, it's likely that she was never married uh, and if she had been married, her husband would have been allowed to divorce her because of her illness. Um, we know that she has financially been tapped out. She spent all of her money, so at some point she may have been a person of means, but she has spent everything that she has to try and cure herself of this disease, but she's exhausted those resources. She's asking for herself. Right? She's not coming on behalf of someone else. She's asking for herself. And she has this long-term chronic need. 12 years that she has been, she has been banished from the community. And, and we might think, you know, we know people who are kind of live on the margins here, but, but this is a, a banishment from the community in a way that we don't really have a category for. Um, it's, it's a, it's a complete, Banishment. You can't go in the temple. You can't go in the synagogue. You can't worship God, essentially, with the, with the community. You're alone, and you can't be around other people. You can't touch another person, and if they touch you, they will be unclean, and nobody wants to be unclean because then they're in the same category as you are. So we are getting a picture about this woman, about her identity, how she viewed herself, and how other people looked at her. But unlike Jairus, we, we saw his identity is rooted in his position, right? He is a man, respected, admired, has, has a role, but her identity is based on her condition, right? Her, her whole identity is based on this illness that she has. And you can see this 
in her approach to Jesus. She sneaks up to him, verse 27 says. She does it quietly. Uh, she, she just sneaks up to him. We could say she's, she's a lurker. She knows how to move around incognito, which literally means unknown. She doesn't speak. She doesn't initiate a conversation. She just quietly approaches from behind Jesus so he can't see her approaching. And she, she quietly touches his garment. She doesn't even touch him. She just touches the bottom of his robe. Now these, these are two very different people. A man and a woman. One's respected. One is rejected. One is used to being heard. One is used to being ignored. But here is where they're both the same. They, they both have a desperate need for Jesus. They both have this, this thing that they, they need him for. And I want to spend the rest of the time looking particularly at this woman, at her faith, and, and try to see how can we emulate or, or look at the characteristics of her faith and try to follow Jesus in the same way, by recognizing our own desperate need for Jesus just as she had. And so first, there's, a, there's an origin for her faith in Jesus particularly. There's a, there's a birth of something in her that, that pulls her to Jesus. Verse 27 said she had heard the reports about Jesus. So, so her faith, her hope, right, was, was based on Something she had heard. There's a testimony. There's a, there's a report. Okay, I need, to, I need to go to this person because they're doing the kind of thing that I need. And so she, she puts her faith in Jesus, it, really in that testimony. And that whatever, sorry, whatever she had heard about Jesus was enough to cause her to seek him out. She was drawn to Jesus. Now, we have to recognize there are, I don't know, infinite amount of voices in the world that are competing for our faith in the same way, right? We hear testimonies of all kinds. It can be an advertisement, a commercial, uh, talk shows, friends, songs, movies, Facebook, Instagram, social media, whatever your, your thing is. So much of that is, is a bunch of voices saying, put your hope here, Right? Do this, try this, attempt this, go here, be this, right? Put your hope here. And, and in the same way, we know this is a woman who has exhausted all of those avenues. She's tried to heal herself. She's tried to, to find remedies for her need. And none of them have worked. She's only gotten worse. And so she hears about Jesus and she clings to what she has heard about him. And this is the birth of her faith. And next she comes to meet Jesus as the object of her faith. Uh, Jesus has, has come from being some, something she's heard about to someone she encounters, the object of her faith. In verse 26, Mark tells us that, that again, she'd had these objects in the past, objects of faith, but these many physicians spending all our money, she's no better, she's grown worse and, and you know this, right? When you're in trouble and something's going on, uh, when you get desperate, you'll try, I will try just about anything to, to get better, to fix it. 
uh, even against our better judgment sometimes, right? Uh, I hurt my neck on Friday night, just being old, I guess. Like I was, I was reading in bed. I went to adjust my pillow and all of a sudden just shooting fire pain like all through my neck and shoulder. And I'm like, I'm not even 40 yet. Here we go. And yesterday I was like, I'll do anything. Like I will drink a quart of essential oils, like whatever I need to do to heal myself. Uh, I will... I will do it. And, and you can look back in your own life. This is just a temporary thing for me. I'm dealing with it for one day, and I'm like, whatever. I will acupuncture, whatever. Just, just fix me. Um, for this woman, she believes Jesus is, is the answer. He's the, he's the fulfillment of the desperation that she has in her. He's what she has been looking for. He's become the object and, and a lot of things have let her down in the past, but, but her faith is, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So Jesus has become the object of her faith. And, and everything turns, really everything hinges on the truthfulness of the object of faith. Uh, so, so you can believe that something is what you need, but if it's not, if it's not truly what you need, it doesn't matter how, how convinced you are, how, how many people tell you that it's what you need. If it's not true, then it's not going to help you. It's not going to fix you. It's not going to heal you. And in this passage, Mark is showing us that Jesus, Mark's making a claim here, Jesus is the only true object of faith, ultimately, uh, when we think about what we really, really need, what we're really desperate for. And when, Mark is saying, when we put our faith in Jesus, when he becomes the object of our faith, everything is going to change in our lives when we make him that object of faith. And that's exactly what happens for this woman in verse 29. Immediately, The flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She's healed. What she desired, what she longed for, it happened. She's healed after 12 long, painful, isolated years. She is healed. But that's not the end of the story here in Mark, and it's not the end of this woman's story. She's made Jesus the object of her faith, and she's healed, but Jesus is going to show her that that when we make him the object of our faith, there is a cost, that faith has a cost. Verse 30, Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately he turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. So we've looked at Jairus, we've looked at this woman. Let's look at Jesus, what he does here. He perceives that power has gone out from him, and, and he knows that, that it's because, it's the result of someone's faith in him. And, and we have to remember what's going on here. He's rushing with a desperate man to go to this guy's house to heal his daughter. That's, that's what's going on. That's the scene. And yet, what does Jesus do when this happens? He stops. He stops. 
Okay, this is, we just, we have a hard time doing this with the Bible sometimes, but just close your eyes and imagine giant crowd of people, you're leaving the 49er game or whatever, and there's thousands of people around you, and you just stop. Jesus stops in the midst of this crowd, and then he speaks to the crowd. <laughs> he, and, and he persists in asking his question, who touched me? The disciples, I mean, this is, I mean, if there was a time that I would say, Satan, get behind me, this would be it, right? This is the sarcastic moment for the disciples. They're like, you are in a giant crowd of people. How can you ask who touched you? Everyone is touching you. Like, this is, this is exactly what's going on. But he presses on. He continues to look for her. He basically waits. I'm going to wait until I find out who touched me. And, and we know this woman who has been sick, who has been unclean, who has been an outcast. Her whole life has been about quietly slipping away, being unnoticed, so that, that no one would know how close they were to someone who made them unclean. And it's likely that she's bumping into people, she's touching people, and they're becoming unclean without them knowing it. So she's really going out on a limb here. So she just wants to quietly slip away. I got what I came for. I got what I needed. And now I can go be purified. And then my life can start again. But Jesus doesn't let her slip away. Her faith has a cost. D.A. Carson, again, he says, she would have been happy with a miracle, but Jesus wants a meeting. Man, think about your life in that way. We want a miracle, we want to be saved, but Jesus wants a meeting. When you think about um, the things that you, um, objects in your life, because uh, we've been talking about the objects of faith, um, we can relate to an object, right? You all have a phone in your pocket probably, it's, it's me and my phone, and we have kind of a relationship with that that's probably unhealthy, uh, me and my computer, me and my car, me and my stuff, right? These are objects, tools that we use, things that we possess. But we also relate to people. Uh, we relate to our spouses. We relate to our children. We relate to our roommates and our coworkers, our friends, the people we see just in casual uh, encounters at the grocery store or wherever. Uh, so we understand the difference, right? There are objects and there are people. Um, I think that a lot of times we relate to God as an object, that he is an object. So we have me and my God, and we have, we have God who does things for us, right? He accomplishes things for us. We have a relationship with him, but it's more as an object than with a person. But Jesus is making really clear in this interaction, and really by him coming into the world. This is what Jesus is showing us, that God wants to relate to us and he wants us to relate to him as people in a personal way. And he says it here, who touched me? Not who used me as an object. Who touched me? Who came to me? And, and again, I think this woman would have been fine just being healed, never having talked with Jesus. She's trying to sneak away. I, I got what I came for, but Jesus is not 
an object to be used for our enjoyment, our benefit, uh, just something that we need in a transactional way. Jesus wants a personal interaction with us. He wants to get into our lives. And this is the cost of faith in Jesus. You can put your faith in a lot of other things that don't require this from you, but Jesus requires personal interaction, a personal relationship. And look at what she does. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. She falls down before him, told him the whole truth. So now she reveals herself. She, she knows that she can hide no longer. She's been found out. And, and she comes in fear and trembling because she has done something that she should not do. She has made Jesus and anyone else who she's come into contact with unclean. And this is what she's been used to, being rejected, being an outcast. And she can't do anything but fall at Jesus' feet, just as Jairus had done. And she tells him the whole truth. Here's my story. Here's what's happened to me. Now, Jesus, <laughs> he always asks more than we are willing to give. Just, just think about different areas of your life. That Jesus is always asking for more than we're willing to give. Like if we had bargaining power, we would counter, we would have a counter proposal for Jesus, but we don't. We don't have bargaining power as much as you try. But we also need to see that Jesus, he always gives us more than we thought we were asking for. So he's, he's going to ask more from us than we're willing to give, but he's always going to give to us more than we ask for so that when we make Jesus the object of our faith, the, the result in our lives is, is far greater than we had imagined. And this is the result of faith in verse 34. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. I, I think this this encounter is so incredible that, that Jesus doesn't chastise her. He doesn't correct her. He doesn't shun her. He doesn't shame her for what she's done. He claims her. He calls her his daughter. He calls her your, your mine. Jairus is going out of his way, right, to see his daughter saved. He's desperate for her to live. And Jesus goes out of his way and makes Jairus wait to show the same kind of care for this woman who has no position, who has no role, who has no value to society. Jesus says, just as Jairus, who's this important, respected man, loves his daughter, I love you. You are my daughter. And, and to this woman who she's not been claimed, she's not been loved, she's not been embraced or accepted for so many years, I think you have to imagine and ask, what was this like for her? She's afraid, she's trembling, she's kneeling on the ground, and what she receives is Jesus' claim on her as his daughter. And she's been, she got what she wanted, she's been made well, but Jesus is doing something more for this woman. She doesn't just receive the benefit of his power. She receives the blessing of his name. You 
are mine. And not like we would say you are mine to a thing, an object, but you are mine like you would say to your daughter. I have three daughters, and when I pray with them, when they're going to sleep, I often will pray, Jesus, I thank you that these girls are mine, and then I'll tell them. And I've done this I don't know how many times over the years. You're my girl. I'm your daddy. I'll always love you. Nothing can ever change that. And sometimes they'll roll their eyes. (laughs) Dad, you always tell me that. You always say that. You've said it so many times. But I want them to know they're loved. Jesus does that with this woman. This desperate woman. She's come to the end of herself. She's exhausted. She's out of options. She's put her, her last ditch hope in him, and she's been made well. But more than that, Jesus calls her his own. She wants a something. She wants to be healed, but Jesus wants a someone. He wants a person. He wants you. She's saved, right? She's delivered because the object of her faith is Jesus. She's not just healed from her physical illness, but she's restored as a person. She's made whole. And Jesus says, go to her, but he's not saying, go away, get away from me, but he says, go in peace. Go in peace. You're not just healed of your disease. You now have something that you've never had before. You have Peace, you have freedom. You are a whole person in a way that you've never been, that your life has an order and a call on it that it's never had. You've come into my kingdom now. You are mine. I've taken away your suffering and I will bear it on myself. I've taken away your rejection. I've taken away your uncleanness, and I will carry it on my shoulders. I take you, you take me. That is faith in Jesus. And so the end question for us, the result of this has to be, what is the object of your faith? What are you putting your faith in? And, and I know for many of us, we we have been following Jesus for many years, but, but we have to recognize that sometimes the way we think about Jesus, the way we view God is, is not right. It's incorrect and it needs to be reshaped. It needs to be reformed and recalibrated because we often think, if I went to Jesus as desperate as this woman, I would be rejected. I would be cast out because of who I am, because of my identity. But you need to remember who Jesus is. You need to hear his voice in this story, the claim that he makes on you, that he doesn't just want to count you as a number, uh, put you on the list, but to, to be in relationship with you, to claim you as his own. He's already done that if you were following him.
And you can, you can hear the invitation just as fresh and beautiful as, as the first time you heard his invitation. Receive his grace. Receive his salvation. And it will cost you. It will always cost you. But the, the gain, the reward is so much greater. And he promises, Jesus promised for us, is that when we do this, that we will be completely loved, completely saved. Now will our immediate needs are met, but always and ever our needs will be met. And it's just true that our whole life changes when we follow Jesus. Hebrews 11 verse 6 that says that without faith it is impossible to please God forever Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And we, we think of that kind of as like a, like a check, like you better get your stuff in order. But, but listen to that ending, that he rewards those who seek him. That there's this invitation, not just to do the stuff, right? To, to do the job, but to enjoy abiding with Jesus that he rewards those who seek him. So, so yes, God says, you need faith to, to be with me, to please me. And then there's this welcome that comes right on the heels of that, that gives us a basis for our faith, to open our eyes to see who Jesus is, that he's worthy of our trust and our hope and our faith. So, so the, the invitation for you and me is that wherever you are today, no matter how desperate your life may be, that Jesus is welcoming you, again maybe, to put your faith in him today and that he loves you, that he enjoys you, and that he can handle whatever you're carrying. And that's why we call it good news. <laughs> this, is, this is good news for us today, that, that our faith isn't, so much an assignment, right, that we have to finish before the deadline, but it's this invitation to, to enjoy Jesus and to believe that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for your invitation that that we are all desperate, that we are all in a place um, where our lives can be falling apart and everything is going wrong. But you stop and you look for us, you wait for us, and you invite us into the light, you invite us into freedom, and you claim us as your own. Thank you for this beautiful news that we, that we can be part of this story, that we're part of your story, and that you will never leave us, you'll never forsake us, and that our faith, uh, we, can, we can put everything on you. We can lean all the way on the rope, and you will never fail us. Call us into that faith today and send us out in that faith today. Jesus, we, 
we recognize you and worship you as our Lord, our King, and our Savior, the one who calls us son and daughter. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.